It's Friday, and today, of course, thankfully, <laughs> that means live Q&A. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, a show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Joshua Sheets. I am your host. Today is Friday. And as with every other Friday, at least in which I can arrange the appropriate technology, we do live Q&A. You call in. We talk about whatever you want. Love doing these Friday Q&A shows and plan to be doing quite a few of them over the next few weeks. Uh, stationary. I'm sitting in the rural France right now, in rural southern France for the next month. So really enjoying our time here. Uh, I always get questions about, Joshua, what are those birds in the background? <laughs> so today's birds <laughs> are the uh, are the French ones. I assume that you'll hear by their, uh, by their accent that they are appropriately French. These Friday Q&A shows work just like any other call-in talk radio show works. Basically, it's a live show where you can call in, talk about anything that you want to do want to any questions any comments anything that you want to chat about with me for the benefit of the audience to gain access to these shows you need to become a patron of radical personal finance go to patreon.com slash radical personal finance find me there on patreon and sign up to support the show there and that will give you access to one of these friday q a calls I would love to have you there uh, supporting the show on Patreon. That just helps me keep the call volume down to usually go for four, five, six, seven callers, something like that. Otherwise, it winds up being 30, 40, 50 callers, and I I can't do that in a reasonable uh, amount of time. We begin today, however, with Trey in Texas. Trey, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today, sir? Hey, thanks, Joshua. Um, We just had our first child, and I wanted to ask your opinion on how to save um, for his future education. And that, I mean, I, I still think college is a pretty good deal right now. Um, I think it's making some kind of ominous sounds though. And I'd like to maybe not have it tied up to where it has to be used on, on a traditional university. Although that's probably where, you know, he'll, he'll end up going, I would guess, but, um, you know, 18 years is a long time. So just wanted to ask how you would recommend we save, uh, for him to either, attend the university or do some some kind of other further education after high school so common question we'll give it the rapid treatment here although i i certainly expect this to be a 15 20 minute conversation because it's there's a lot of things to do but let's begin with the basic concept of i don't see much point in saving for a child's education if that means that you're going to sacrifice some other goal that is more important so a couple of base baseline points. Most of us who are parents want to make sure that our children have the best life that we can offer them. However, financially speaking, college should be one of the lower financial priorities. The classic comparison that I have stated many, <laughs> probably thousands of times, at least hundreds, maybe not a thousand, uh, is simply this. You can borrow for kids' college. You can't borrow for retirement. So if saving for your child's education in the future is costing you some other goal that is more important, you shouldn't do it. I don't think it makes any sense for you to shortchange your retirement savings in order to save for your child's education. But more importantly, right, that's common advice. More importantly, 
I would say, I don't think it makes any sense for you to shortchange your personal freedom goals uh, in order to save for your child's education. I don't think it makes sense for you to shortchange your business building goals in order for you to save for your child's education. I think it's one goal among many, and so you should order your goals and pursue whatever you think is going to be the most important aspect to it. Now, that said, many people like to have clear goals related to finance, and I think that's a really good idea, right? I have them, you have them, we all have them. We have this idea of segmenting our money, and it helps us to make thoughtful decisions. So I don't see anything wrong with saving for your child's education. The second argument that I like to make is I believe that saving for college, if saving for college is causing you to shortchange something today, I believe that saving for college is the wrong move. I believe that every dollar invested into early childhood education is going to pay off far more than a dollar down the road. Right, the, the the time to invest in a child's education is in the early years, because college is such a simple thing for somebody who is either talented with some marketable skills such as athletics, or somebody who is cognitively has a high IQ, high cognitive capability. College is very simple to pay for, whereas other things are more difficult. And so, if I had to choose between and rolling my child into a, uh, a better quality school, a private school versus a lower quality school, I would pay for the private school. If I had to choose between hiring a personal tutor to come into my home and homeschool my children to the cost of whatever that costs, knowing that I'm not going to be able to save for college, I'm going to do that. If I had to choose between taking my children world schooling and traveling around the world with them, I'm going to do that instead of saving for college education. If I had to choose between enrolling my children into career-oriented, interest-oriented, passion-oriented summer camps, I'm going to do that before I'm going to save for my child's college education because I believe those are a better bang for the buck. They make more sense. And again, college is easy to solve financially. And so what I don't like is the fact that many parents prioritize this ephemeral idea of college savings if it's hurting something today. And in my experience, most parents are not in tune with the things that they can do today that are far more likely to impact the course of their child's life than the things that you can do down the road in college. And so if I have to choose between those things, I am going to choose those early childhood opportunities. I'm going to choose that expensive summer camp. If that's the one that that really fits my child's needs, uh, I'm going to do homeschooling and I'm going to give up uh, you know, a family income so that we can homeschool instead. If we're into that, I'm going to go and enroll in the private school. I'm going to do those things early. And so thus, most of this conversation really goes out the window if you buy that, that those arguments. Now, I don't say them lightly, but consider those first two things so that you can understand what might be the best before you get to what type of account or what type of investment asset should I use. Uh, because I believe that those, those points are are really valuable and really important. Now, the third thing that we don't know is we don't know what the cost of college is going to be. And so the so for people who are just saying, well, I'm concerned that edu- college education is getting expensive and I just want to have a little bit of money, I usually say, yeah, it's probably not that big a deal. Right now, today, in 2021, 
in the United States of America, you can get a fully accredited college degree with no scholarships, just straight out the door tuition for 10,000 bucks total, get a bachelor's degree. So anybody can simply pay for that. Um, and so uh, there are lots of options. And I think that in the future, those options are going to be far more numerous. So when someone says, well, I'm saving for tuition at a local, just run-of-the-mill college, I often say, well, don't bother so much. The people who I really think should prioritize college savings accounts are those who have a family culture and a personal culture where they're deeply committed to formal education and they're saving for big dollar colleges, right? You're saving for a big dollar Ivy League college. You know there's going to be a $200,000 tuition bill or a whatever number. Then that makes a lot of sense to save for. But if you're just saving a few thousand dollars, it doesn't make a lot of sense other than to make you feel good about, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm investing in my child's future. The next point that I like to make is a lot of times you need to understand that the so-called college savings accounts are only modestly effective at actually funding college. Why? Well, the first point I point out is the savings. And here I'm talking about things like 529 programs, educational savings accounts. So those are the two most popular, uh, although there are you can still do educational savings bonds, but nobody does that. Um that, that those types of accounts are limited in impact with regard to actual tax savings. So a lot of times someone might come along and say, I've got a 10-year-old child and um, I want to set aside money for my 10-year-old child's education. And so I'm going to put aside $100 a month. Well, if you run the math on what you get, might expect with $100 a month going into a stable account of, of some kind, you're not really saving anything. And what most of those college accounts do is they don't actually save, they only allow you to avoid paying income taxes on the increase in the account value to the extent that there is an increase if used for education, which all, all told in most of the time, that's not a very big tax bill. And so most college accounts have limited effectiveness. They make you feel good and the numbers don't make that big of a difference. So you might pass some of those barriers. What, and so some of the things that I look for when someone says, um, I want to save for my child's college. First thing, I look for a young child. You have a baby, so this is perfect. The second thing that I really like to see is can that account be front-loaded? So instead of $100 a month, can you just put in ten grand? Right? Because now you might start to get enough gain. If you put in ten grand or fifty grand or whatever you're trying to put aside for a child's education, and you do it up front, as front-loaded as possible, then you now have the much more opportunity for the accounts to grow so that college accounts can actually be um, uh, really powerful and really useful from a tax savings perspective. I also look for someone who wants to save substantial money. Uh, and, and if those things are there, then yeah, I think college accounts are a good fit for that. Now, you didn't ask just about college accounts, so let me give a number of alternative ideas that I think make a lot of sense to consider. The first idea that I think makes a lot of sense to consider is simply acknowledge the fact that we don't know where you're going to be at that point in time, and we don't know what college is going to be like. And so if you buy the idea that it makes sense for me to square away my financial life first— then set up your financial life in such a way that it gives you personal flexibility in order for you to, to be able to cash flow college. What most wealthy parents do when the time comes for college is they simply pay for it. They simply 
pay for it, right? Out of cash flow. And so think about if you're taking out a mortgage, right? Maybe you have a 30-year mortgage, but you got a brand new baby. So to make out an amortization schedule and say, we think we're going to be here. I'm going to pay this mortgage on an 18-year schedule so that I have no mortgage payment when my child is in college. If you uh, are thinking about buying a new car and taking out a car payment and you want to pay for your child's education because, hey, you know, my son is going to college at 18 years old. Well, then just make sure that your car payment is not going to exist during that time so that you can simply cash flow the college payment. Uh, these are these are useful ideas. Now, what can you invest in? Well, if you want to invest in a college account, such as a 529 account or an educational savings account, you're going to be limited to mainstream mutual funds or to a private you know, college's growth and investment and prepaid tuition type of program. Um, ignoring prepaid tuition, because I think that's kind of a silly program to, for most people to be involved in, uh, ignoring prepaid tuition, basically those accounts work really well if you want to participate in mainstream investments. Now, you don't technically have to do this. For example, if you're proficient with investing, you've got some really high return investment, you can do a self-directed educational savings account. You can put an LLC into that educational savings account, and you can use that LLC to invest in higher returning investments. Uh, you could buy tax lien certificates and put them in your, in your ESA. Uh, you can actually set up a checkbook LLC through which you self-direct your 401k, your uh, IRA, and your ESA. And so if that's of interest to you, then you can do that. Most people aren't going to do that because most people aren't interested in that kind of investment. So the people who I would try to steer towards 529s, ESAs, things like that, those people are generally people that I would that would say are just going to be mainstream investors are looking for passive investments. They don't have to be involved. They're not going to be out on the weekends painting shutters and mowing grass, et cetera. And they're just looking for um, for simple, smooth and done for you. And in that case, uh, if you have relatively small dollar amounts, an ESA is a good solution. If you're looking to put more money aside, a 529 is a good solution. And these are these are fine with the caveats that I have said um, what I would say you look for is choose your state carefully. Uh, you can invest into any state's 529 account. Uh, I think that Clark Howard does a really good job of listing various 529 accounts and their fees. So I've always sent people to, to him. He and his staff update that regularly. So go and find Clark Howard's 529 account guide and follow his advice if you're looking for that kind of uh, ordinary mutual fund type of approach. The things that have often been more exciting to me, though, are more unusual ideas, things that uh, look differently. So um, I'll just give you maybe a few, I'll just pick a few of them. Um, one approach is to make sure that your child doesn't need college and that your child is able to support himself by the time he actually gets to college. I think that this is a good plan. Uh, I think that it can be done with academics. I have had so many friends who have been academically capable and their, their scores were good, their grades were great, and they got paid to go to school. Uh, and so, uh, again, back to my philosophy of early childhood rather than saving, I think that makes a lot of sense, is focus on that versus the finances. I would love to see someone invest into a business that helps their children. I think one of the best things you can do is teach your children how to support themselves at an early age. How you do this, I think it, it's up to you. Maybe you buy, uh, you know, you go to ifixit.com and you buy a set of, of uh, 
electronic device tools and you teach your child how to set up a, a phone screen replacement, a battery replacement, basically an electronic fix-it business, and uh, he can make money fixing things. Maybe um, your daughter is very gifted with uh, a certain you know, art, and so you teach her how to use that in a, in a commercial capacity. Uh, and so I love to see some kind of business created that's kind of sidelined, but I really, I really believe you can invest into it, right? If, if you, I, I think this, if you took the average, um, if you took the average family, and I know you're not average, and I'm kind of intentionally avoiding asking you a lot of questions because I'm just trying to give you ideas. You have a newborn, right? You can go in any direction. But let's say you took the average person that's spending $150 a month on a 529 account. What I would do is I would say, why don't we spend $150 a month instead on your personal education budget for um, book purchases uh, and and online course purchases, right? Here's your here's a credit card. What I would do is set up a privacy.com debit card with $150 limit uh, per month. And I would say, you know, here, any course you want to buy on Gumroad, you can do it. And I would rather, I would rather, you know, my child spend $150 a month on courses on Gumroad rather than set it aside in a mutual fund so that, you know, he can learn how to trade crypto. He can learn how to play in NFT space. He can learn how to make money from an automated Twitter account. He like he can make learn learn how to make money with his pickup truck. Right? There's so many things you can do. And to me, that seems like a better return on investment than anything in this strictly financial space could be. Uh, and so I really believe that education is more powerful. And if you do the education well, then you minimize a lot of the need for the expensive college tuition. And then your child can choose with your guidance and coaching whether or not college is a good fit at that future time. I just believe that the world is going to be fundamentally different 18 years from now. A second way I think that you can... Um, approach this. And, and by the way, and I don't think that the um, the monopoly on education is going to be is going to be held as strongly as it is today. Today, I have to going by the data, I have to continue to argue that college education seems like a really good investment. It helps your child to have more options, opens doors uh, all around the world, etc. But I don't think that we're going in that direction. That's the old model. And most of the old things that college provided, a sorting and filtering mechanism for society, uh, helping your children to have an appropriate dating pool for an appropriate mate, um, giving basic technical qualifications, many of these things are being are being uh, replaced with with different mechanisms, right? The 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 sorting capability of a well-run Twitter account is far more powerful than the sorting capability of being in the right class at the Harvard School of Business. And what you see is that colleges are generally not keeping up with the rapid pace of change necessary for uh, reacting to a changing marketplace. And so a lot of the markers of things that people really wanted historically are different. 
So I'm not throwing it out. I'm not an extremist, totally opposed to it, but I think it's different and thus requires more flexible thinking. Other things you can do. I think that if you're interested or have the capability, I think it makes a lot of sense to say, I'm going to invest into a specific asset that's going to be for the benefit of my child. And so one of my desires, which has been stymied by my global wanderings, um, if I weren't so involved in constant perambulations, then I would have more opportunity to do it. But one of my ideas has been, I want to invest into a house and I want each of my children to have his or her own house to start them off in life properly so that they have uh, an asset that it can be a hands-on business lesson for them. And so maybe you look at it and say, you know what we'll do is we'll go ahead and I did have uh, ten dollars or $20,000 set aside that I was going to use and put into a 529 account. But what I want to do instead is I want to go ahead and use that $20,000 as a down payment on a rental house. I want to rent a house out. And the goal is, can I get the tenants to pay this thing down over the course of the next 18 years so that you know my new baby is going to have a house? And so maybe he lives in it. Maybe he rents it out and the tenant income pays for his school. But now we have something that is, number one, a business so he can get involved with actual business and start building those business skills. He has an opportunity for work so we can spend time together working on the house, fixing it, etc. He has an opportunity we have an opportunity for a genuine uh, family business with all kinds of um, side t- uh, tax benefits and and planning benefits, etc. And to me that's the kind of t- goal that for me is just more exciting than a 529 account and is vastly better from a tax planning perspective, potentially better from a return perspective if the the property is is well chosen. But even if you just said the house we're not going to get we're going to get no benefit from appreciation. Um, we're not we're going to get no benefit from uh, tax sheltering. We're just going to focus on mortgage paydown. It's a pretty good move if you could do that compared to the to the flip side of the of the five two nine account. Uh, I like the idea of my children having collections of things, right? And so maybe your goal is I'm going to buy a silver American Eagle or or a, uh, maybe a monster box of it's too much a, a tube of silver American Eagles for every year of my child's life. This is something I like to do, right? Where you you make sure that hey, you know what? You were born in 2021, and hey, here's a here's a cool coin collection of silver or gold. You could do it with gold too. Here's a gold coin for every year. Now, I'm not arguing that those. I'm not. I'm not arguing that a. Uh, uh, let's say you buy a gold American Eagle, an ounce of gold every year, instead of putting the money into a five to nine account. I'm not arguing that the fi- that the gold will outstrip the return of, say, a mutual fund. Is it possible? Yeah, but it's unlikely. Uh, but there are other benefits to it, right? Now we have real physical assets that are interesting. The child can touch, can hold uh, as assets that aren't recorded in the same way in terms of financial assets held at financial reporting institutions. And so there is a little bit of fuzziness there when it comes to reporting who owns what. You have a choice of when you actually gift the asset. Um, And so I'm not arguing you should break the law. Just one of the benefits of things like gold coins. Uh, so there are lots of things you can do, and I would love to see, I guess, my, I'm, to, to, to lay my cards out clearly on the table, I believe that if you will focus on your child as an individual and consciously choose to spend money actively on the interests, the, the, 
the just the interest that your child has, then I think that you can do better with those investments than than you can with um, than you can with just putting the money aside in a five two nine account. So I'm not. I guess one final point would be this, right? The other thing that I think you should seriously consider is I expect by the time 18 years come, comes by, I expect college to be free. In the same way that today education is free of cost for anybody who wants it, just like it's always been, right, with a library card. Now we just have way better resources with um, what's available for free online. I expect schooling itself to be free. And so the way I look at it is this. I think that government schooling at the college level will be free, quote unquote, by the time my children are at college age. I expect it to be as worthless as anything that is free actually is. And so I still expect there to be very high dollar educational institutions available, but I'm not willing to save, especially in college accounts, for those high dollar institutions. If at some point in time, my child decides, you know what, I want to go to an elite uh, Ivy League university, then either I'm going to be wealthy enough that I can simply pay for it, and I'm going to choose that, yes, this actually is appropriate because we're going to move you into an upper class or we're going to provide you know, the things that come with that, or let them pay him to come or let her figure it out. But I'm not going to set aside these accounts for something that is completely unknowable, especially when the benefits of the college accounts, et cetera, are, uh, are not there. And so what I do, you know, what have I done? Um, I, don't, I don't have college accounts for my kids. It doesn't make any sense um, for me to do that. I'm not opposed to it, as I've tried to say, say it very clearly. I don't think you're wrong to do it. I'm just not going to do it. What do I do? Well, I invest in my children. I try to buy them all kinds of things that are going to stimulate their creativity. I try to buy them cool stuff that's going to help them, uh, right? I'll, I'll spend money on fancy gear. Like right now with the travels, I've bought my children kind of mediocre cameras, but right now I'm thinking, okay, I need, I should go ahead. And, and what I need to do is go ahead and buy my, you know, almost eight year old, a. Uh, a brand new GoPro, right? With a media mod kit so that he can be doing high quality video and high quality um, camera shots and start learning a skill of videography. And to me, I view that as an investment. Um, it, that's a bet and a probably a better investment than money in an account. And so whether it's, I, I want to be committed to my children's education and I'm finding lots and lots of ways to spend money on that now. And as far as I can see, we're only getting started. And so I'm going to spend a lot of money on my children's education, and I'm going to do it in the very best way that I can. And if the time comes when college comes, I've got a couple backup options, right? I'm going to teach my children, and they can always go to a country where college is already free. Uh, any U.S. American or anyone from anywhere can right now today apply and go to a German university without being German, without speaking German, and go completely tuition-free, has to cover his own room and board. Any person can go to college working part-time. I put myself through a private school, um, pretty expensive, did it part-time. Anybody can apply and work my way through, graduated debt-free. Any person can go and simply... Um, uh, simply uh, uh, 
go to a less expensive school and, and go through slowly, et cetera. So I think I've said my point. So I, I, if you want details way back in the beginning of the show, I did a whole series of shows. I think I did like sex hours or something on every college account and how to use it and educational savings bonds. I'm focusing on these ideas because that stuff is easy and obvious. Um, if you decide that what's best for us is to go ahead and set aside uh, a college savings account, uh, and we want to do it, and we don't want to be messing around with buying houses or gold coins or anything like that, go and open a 529, go to Clark Howard's guide, uh, use one of those 529s, you'll be done in 15 minutes and move on your way. There's, that'll, it'll work fine. Uh, but I think that by doing that, you're missing out on the really high return activities, which are all these other things that I've mentioned. All right. Yeah, I think uh, I think you kind of convinced me. I was kind of leaning that way anyway. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't think I'm going to do a five two nine. Just set aside money. And if it does help you feel better to have an account for your new child, what I would say is choose your budget and set up an account for your new child, set up a bank account. And if you were going to put $200 a month in a 529 account, just put $200 a month into the bank account and then start to see what adds up. And then in the coming years, it's hard to spend. The only way I've come up with to spend money effectively on the education of my zero-year-old, one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old, et cetera, is to have my wife as a full-time mother. That's it. And that's a major cost. It's a financial cost to our family. It's a cost to her. Uh, and someday our children will appreciate it. That's the only way I know of to invest in a two-year-old. Um, but when your child starts to get to six, seven, eight, all of a sudden it opens up the world that I'm talking about in a really powerful way. Uh, and so set the money aside in an account and then think about it. That way it's allocated and separated and you feel like you're being a responsible father. Um and then, you know, hey, if, if two years from now you decide, you know what, I really think a 529 account is a good deal, then go ahead and just make a lump sum contribution, put your five or 10,000 bucks in it and uh, move on from there. Well, I said 15 minutes, it turned into be 26 minutes instead. Let's go to Thomas. Thomas, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today, sir? Thomas, you're up. Hey, Joshua, can you hear me? I can hear you now. Go ahead, sir. Hello? Yes, go ahead, please. Got right. you loud and clear, Thomas. Go hey, Joshua, ahead. thanks mm -hmm. uh, for the call and all that you do. Yeah. Um, I just want to say I do appreciate the last question. I have a newborn as well, and I look forward to uh, any updates that you have on your process over time and if you're willing to share on how you end up um, introducing activities or especially business aspects to your children in the future. Uh, I did want to just say for, for Trey, one uh, plan that I had actually was I actually set up a 529 account and just let family and friends know that, hey, instead of clothes or toys, that they can contribute to that on my child's behalf. And um, that can get some funding that way. So I think that's a great idea. Absolutely. And people like it. You know, people, um, there's no I question that people like those a, accounts. Yeah. Uh, I personally had a question about crypto interest and lending platform accounts like uh, BlockFi, Celsius, Nexo, Cake, etc. Um, I'm specifically uh, using some of them to park funds for passive income and or while waiting for other opportunities. Just kind of wondering what your thoughts were about um, any of those accounts, if you had any, if you've um, met anyone that um, maybe at conferences you've been to that has anything to say about them. 
you know, the current stablecoin yields are between like seven and 10% right now. So it seems kind of attractive. A lot of them seem to be venture capital backed. So it seems like there's a little bit less risk there. Um, and the liquidity is, is great. So just wondering what your thoughts were. I have nothing bad to say about any of those uh, ideas or platforms. Um, my only thought, I'm totally in favor of doing it. And I applaud you for being involved. Um, my only comment is simply, while I appreciate the long-term potential of some of these ideas, and while I am wholeheartedly in favor of building and developing and participating in a fundamental reorganization of the global financial markets, I'm not scared of that. I think this still does have to be viewed as speculation rather than as investment. Uh, and so I am very much in favor of speculation, but I try to label clearly what is speculation and what is investments. And so in these marketplaces, because the technology and the platforms are so new and because they are relatively untested, there will be problems and hijinks and just things that occur. And so whether it's a marketplace being hacked and completely losing, you know, having some fundamental flaw that's shown, whether it's legislative risk, right? I always um, you know, talk about, I talk, debate with people about things like, well, is the U.S. American government going to ban Bitcoin? And I always say, listen, you're dealing with the, the same government that for 40 years banned you owning a gold coin. So it took 40-something years. For 40 years, you couldn't even own a gold coin. And before that, that was everyone to use, legally speaking. And so, I mean, don't don't say anything's not, not, nothing's impossible. And so um, my only point would be label your activities here very clearly as speculation and then assess your overall financial position to make sure that this speculation makes sense in your life based upon your needs, your goals, and your personal risks. As long as it's labeled speculation, I'm, I'm fully on board. Do you, still, uh, do you still consider it speculation because the platforms are new, even though the asset itself is a stable coin, which... Um, you know, there are certain stable coins that are audited and fully backed um, and rarely have any sort of fluctuation. I can't, from personal experience and personal knowledge, I can't speak effectively enough to the to to every single detail. And so I can't say I, I don't have a BlockFi account at the moment. I don't know how to to do that. Uh, and so I can't say from that perspective, from personal experience, I have read some about it to get a, an exposure to it, but I can't say it from personal experience. And so um, my only comment would be that even the whole concept of a stable coin to me, unless I'm wrong and feel free to tell me why I'm wrong, the concept of a stable coin is a fundamentally new concept that while it's related to an external asset and there's, and it's the idea is, hey, let's tokenize the external asset that to me still feels very much like a new and, and uh, a brand new and exciting market, not as a tested and tried and true uh, approach. Am I wrong? No, it's still, it's still uh, definitely a new asset, even though it's linked to another one to link its value. But yes, it definitely, I could see a future where, um, I don't know, the US government wanting their own 
US dollar coin tries to uh, I don't know, have some sort of law against stable coins or other ones that they don't control. So um, no, there's definitely there's definitely that potential. Yeah, I can acknowledge that. I would like to, I have been working very hard to upgrade my education and make sure that I'm competent, but I still have not renamed this podcast as the DeFi podcast, right? It's not, that's not, I'm not there yet. Uh, and so I can't speak to it effectively <laughs> enough to, to say, here's how it all works. My only point would be that you can have, I guess the best example that most of us could relate to would be the mortgage backed, the mortgage backed securities crisis of the late 2000s that you have an asset uh, that is fundamentally always considered a very safe, very conservative asset. And then that asset was tokenized, or more properly, of course, turned derivativized, turned into a derivative. And then at the end of the day, that derivative was shown to be far less safe than previously, previously understood. And so when you had those mortgage-backed securities created, the original creations of that, uh, the original creations were excellent. They had the same basic uh, value that they always had. But then as the securities were traded and, the, and sliced more finely and layered up, et cetera, the market got out of whack underneath it. And so then one day everyone woke up and realized what we thought was a grade A asset is actually a piece of trash. And so everything collapsed. Now, I can't tell you, and I'm not arguing to say that's that I'm not saying that what you've described is that. All I'm saying is whenever something new is created, there are inherent risks that are not yet known. Mortgage-backed securities were a new creation and it took time for the new risks to be known. And so this is a new market. And while the underlying concepts may prove to be sound, and I hope they are, caution is warranted to say we don't know what we don't know. It's no different, it, it, it's no different than anything, right? A new medical treatment, uh, a new way of building a house, anything takes time to be tested. So I say be involved and understand it. The risks, no doubt you could articulate it better than I can, but be aware that this is speculation. This is not uh, a time-proven a time proven strategy that has been tested through various markets, through various conditions, that has proven itself through various attacks. Uh, for all of its benefits and glory, Bitcoin is not in any way proven. It is a concept that is being proven, but even the the whole concept of of whether it's a stable coin or Bitcoin or anything, this is this is new and new. That's not that's not bad. I just say from a personal finance perspective, label it speculation. So that's my um, that's my thought, and I look forward to um, perhaps in the future um, talking more about it and learning more myself about the strategies uh, that you're using. John in Pennsylvania, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today, sir? Yeah, I was uh, just kind of a. Uh, Weird question, I guess, but um, and things could change. But there's a really good chance uh, coming up in 2022, um, our family will just have a very low income year, um, and uh, I'm, and we have enough liquid savings that we'll get through 2022 and, and probably beyond without any 
compromises or issues to our lifestyle. Uh, so, you know, take a vacation or two or whatever. Um, but I'm trying to think ahead as to anything that I could do or potentially not do to cause a problem to, um, you know, take advantage of a year like that that has very low income. Um, you know, kind of just not being very creative. The only things I could think of is if I wanted to use that low income W2 income to, to year to transition any money from certain accounts to other accounts for looking ahead things like Roth conversions or whatever. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking more outside the box on, on uh, things I, I have never heard of or just things from a personal finance standpoint that could be, that could be an advantageous year for, um, is there anything that comes to your mind about that or, or is it just sort of just take care of the basics and, and, uh, and, and, Keep keep on with you know good general personal finance. Uh, I think you. <laughs> yes, there are a few things, but I don't know that they're as as brilliant as I wish they were. Uh, I think the obvious <laughs> solution is take advantage of as many free money programs as you can. Um, so whether mm. this is Medicaid, health insurance, uh, whether this is. Uh, uh, you know, if your income is zero, food stamps, right? Or WIC, I guess is, is it's called. Uh, sorry, SNAP, S S Nutritional Assistance Program, um, right? You can go into government programs if you want to get involved in that. Uh, I think that's a double-edged sword. Um, I, I, th I don't think it's worth most of that, getting involved with most of that stuff. But a lot of people could do that. I think the obvious solution is IRA conversions. Uh, converting traditional yeah, IRA assets yeah. to Roth IRAs. Um, sometimes maybe there's some kind of low income program that you could take advantage of, a, a scholarship fund or or something like that, a, a disaster relief fund, etc. cetera. Uh, to me, the only obvious solution that I have is simply the IRA conversions um, because that's an okay. income-based scenario. Kind of you, can fill the IRA, you can fill the income buckets with your conversions. Right. That, and that's kind of what I was doing. I was just trying to think, is there anything I've never heard of or thought of that, um, you know, that kind of year would be uh, advantageous to, to do that kind of thing. So um, if, if there's nothing really that I'm missing, then that's probably a good thing then that I yeah. haven't been ignorant of some major, major side of things. So, yeah. I think you would consider uh, college tuition uh, if you have... Uh, mm -hmm. Right. This is the classic. If you have it back to the first call that we began with today, if you have college tuition mm -hmm. and you can, if you can, if you can arrange to be unemployed in, uh, in the year before yeah. your child is going to college so that you can fill out your FAFSA with, uh, with $0 of income that can help you a lot on your numbers. The only hesitation mm -hmm. I have is I think you can go through and you can, you can possibly, you can be involved in a lot of those kinds of things. I just question if that's healthy for for the psyche. Um, I don't. I don't. Yeah. Wanna, I believe that welfare damages people, and I don't want to be damaged. And so, you know, getting on the free free money train, I think, has the risk of damaging me. And so, I want to be super careful about that stuff. Also, I would say that if you're the kind of person who can comfortably take a year off, then there's, most of those things are just not at the scale where it makes any sense. Uh, and exactly. so it yeah. just, what's the point of having $250 a month of snap probably for food that you wouldn't eat. So it's, it's like, what's, there's no reason. Uh, it's kind of how I feel about a lot of times about credit cards and, and things like that. 
Um, I've been doing quite a lot of mileage hacking. I've been testing a bunch of strategies and whatnot. And the more I do it, the more I recognize that if somebody doesn't have a higher returning activity, then this can be a worthwhile use of time. But there are so many other worthwhile activities and worthwhile uses of time that I, I kind of just feel like a lot of it is a distraction. And and that's how I feel about anything of government programs or rebates or any of that stuff that you can qualify for when you're low income. It's like, hey, if somebody doesn't have something better, it's really good. Uh, the guy who's making just a little bit of money for him to get SNAP is a big deal and it makes a big difference in his monthly budget. But that's not you. And so it's it's like it's the opportunity cost of going and spending time doing that. And it brings down your perspective. You wonder about the ethics of it. Then you start th seeing yourself as the kind of person who needs an extra $3,000 a year of free money. And it's just that's, that's not healthy. And so my only answer is that I know of is uh, IRA conversions. Um, but beyond that, who yeah. knows? Maybe the, the audience has uh, has good ideas. No, yeah, I, I agree, and uh, I think the, um, I think the, uh, uh, what you mentioned about the credit card hacking—that's true too. I mean, I've, I find I do it very sporadically, and only when it's very convenient or very easy and low, low thinking. Uh, it just, um, it, unless you're someone that really enjoys it, I think it, it almost is a wash on how, how valuable it is, um, uh, just because it, it takes so much to coordinate all the different transactions and. And stuff like that. So yeah, I appreciate it. No, that's good. I'm, I'm glad I'm not missing anything major. Um, I have one other, uh, maybe quick question. If, if, if go ahead. I don't know how many followers you have online. Yep, go ahead. Um, the other thing I kind of was focusing on in the next few months, uh, especially, but also in the next year, I'm, I'm really trying to build up a lot of uh, just basic general preparation uh, uh, items uh, for for me and my family. And um, this is something where I kind of bump up against frugality a little bit too much and. You know certain things that are really critical uh you know uh, tourniquets and first aid things and things i know that are on my list are high priority items but uh, i just keep thinking oh, i'll get around to it or i'll 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 purchase those things later and and you know a lot of people will do some fear mongering and talk about you know how things are going to be in short supply in the future um uh, how do you i, I guess Listen to you sometimes really helps me out because when you're traveling and things are so difficult to get in other countries, I feel like you're really going to put a good spin on it, how it's like, well, it's just available in America, so just go get it and don't worry about it. But, um, uh, you know, when, when you're thinking about things like that, when you're living less of a nomad lifestyle, do you, do you just kind of buy all those things and just put them aside and say, okay, it was a one-big-time purchase, or do you kind of buy slowly on, on preparation items um, uh, until you kind of have a good stockpile? What, what do you do with that? I'm thinking about that. It's a fair question because there are some things that are fun to spend money on when it comes to prepping, and there are some things that is not fun to spend money on. Right? I like spending money on guns. Right? I like guns; it's fun. Yeah, right, I can make yeah. a, I can make a good argument that guns hold and increase their value. They're portable. They're just they're just wonderful, and so it's always fun to go and buy a new gun. My least favorite category to spend money on is, me is medical supplies, especially in abundance, yeah. <laughs> right? Because medical yeah. supplies expire. And so it's like, well, how hardcore am I going to be? It's one thing to say I should have a first aid kit. In fact, I'm going to have a first aid kit. 
Uh, it's another thing to say, I'm going to be prepared for the end of the world as we know it, and I'm going to stack bandages. You know, I'm going to have two Rubbermaid totes full of extra bandages in case someday we're, I'm fighting off the, the golden hordes in the street and I come home gut shot and my wife has to do stomach surgery on my kitchen table, right? That's it's, it's a little hard for me to get excited about actually going out and spending tons of money on bandages in a scenario like that because um, that's just a little hard for me to believe. Uh, so here is, here is the best approach that I have come up with. First of all, to ask yourself the question and say, how significant is this event? All right. I was talking to a friend of mine recently when we were talking about medical preparedness and, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm probably a pretty good prepper because I have continually gone from stationary to mobile and stationary to mobile and stationary to mobile and so you understand pretty quickly what are the things that I need to have and what are the things that I don't need to have. And you recognize, okay, these are the certain things that are important. So we were talking about medical preparation. And um, he made the point to me. He said, there are two things that can kill you fast before you can get to a doctor. And there are two things. And those two things are rapid blood loss and or anaphylactic shock. And so we talked about tourniquets, but I've, I've had a tourniquet for a long time. But he said, what you don't have is an EpiPen. And, uh, and, he, and he said, you should, have, you should have an EpiPen for, um, and none of my children, thankfully, my, my, we're an allergy-free family. To, to my knowledge, none of my children are allergic to anything. We've never had any allergic responses that are a problem at all. But he said, you should travel with an EpiPen. And so uh, a few days ago, I was in Spain and I went to the local pharmacy and I paid five euros and I bought an EpiPen. And because it just made all the sense in the world to me. It's like, if these are the two things that, that can cause, um, that can, if these are the two things that if, if they happen to my child, that I, I can jump in the car. And in fact, a few weeks ago, my son, my youngest son was, was straddling a fence, fell down, um, bashed his head on the pavement and gashed his forehead open. Wife calls me, says, you know, my son has just fallen down, cut his head, come home now. He's at the store. So I went home quickly. And it was one of those things where, hey, here's a medical emergency. I didn't know how bad it was. She didn't say, just said he's going to need stitches. And, and, um, and I had to go home and deal with it and took him to a local clinic because it was on his forehead. I wanted to make sure it was professionally closed. Thankfully, they just glued it closed. Uh, so it was. It wound up being a, a not a big deal, but so it it's kind of it put me in that image, right? Here I am speeding home to try to pick up my wounded child in a foreign country, and now I'm going to race off and find a hospital. How do I find a hospital? Do I have what I need to be able to get to a hospital? Well, if you know that the two things that are going to, um, if you know that the two things that could potentially that you could die from in about 20 minutes or less, right? Die in 30 minutes or so that it might take you to get to the hospital or flag down help of some kind are rapid blood loss and or anaphylactic shock. Then it makes all the sense in the world to go in and buy a bunch of tourniquets. And so in the past, I was like, I don't want to buy a bunch of tourniquets, right? You're going to spend this money and you never use a thing. But now like I get it right. Afresh. Right? It, it sounds expensive to spend $30 on a nice cat tourniquet, but then you know what? I'm going to put a tourniquet in every one of my cars. I'm going to put a tourniquet anywhere and several places in my house. Like I'm going to do it because that's cheap insurance versus the, the the flip side. So the first thing is looking at the looking at what's going to happen uh, and how immediate is it. It doesn't make any sense in the world for me not if that's true 
for the rest of my life not to always have EpiPens around and tourniquets around because potentially that could save uh, a life. Now, am I going to stack things deep in order to deal with, you know, my being gut shot with on my kitchen table? I, I don't really, I can't see that scenario being so much. And so what I look at is I say, can I have a balanced approach? And so with something like food storage, for example, um, I think it's probably a little excessive for most people to start with a goal of saying, I'm going to save three years worth of food. And so I, I look at it and say, well, let's start with a little bit. What's a month of food? And so for a month of food, that's easy to do. And you probably just have more of what you have than a few months. And then you, by the time you start to get into six months or so of food, then most of that stuff is pretty cheap. And so I, again, look at it and say, okay, if I'm going to buy buckets of corn, wheat, um, rice, and beans, that stuff's super cheap. You put it aside, it should, it should last for 30 years. Um, it's not that big of a deal for me to spend 500 bucks on it. And this stuff is last for, for, for decades. So my model is start by saying a short term, three months, six months, um, and kind of build out. And then finally to try to be well balanced. So what I think is often missing is people aren't well balanced. And a lot of the things that you can do to be well balanced, they don't cost a lot of money. It just costs a matter of thinking and hassle. So if you're going to be unemployed, then this is the time just to make a list, make your lists, and then just spend your time uh, cruising Facebook Marketplace every every day or so and just moseying around and seeing what's there instead of spending a lot of money. Because the vast majority of so-called prepping items are actually really cheap. And if you have time, just wait for a deal. Um, so something that's important to me is a generator. And so if you don't have a generator, I think you start with a good one, right? Go and buy a good generator, but it doesn't have to be a lot of money, but just go and buy a good generator. But then maybe at some point you might want to have a backup. Well, then just wait for a deal to come along. And so if you have something, you know, if I have a couple of months worth of preparedness, if I have a water filter, if I have, uh, you know, a deep pantry with some spaghetti and spaghetti sauce, and I've got, um, you know, some of the basics, then no, I'm not going to be in a big hurry to go and spend lots of money. Most of that stuff, just sit and wait and find some deals along the way. That sounds very good. And that's, that's exactly where I'm at. There's a lot, there's a lot of things where I say I'm well beyond the basics, uh, mostly due to your course. Um, and, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's these things where I feel like I'm, I am waiting for deals and I'm getting things slowly, sometimes even free. And um, sometimes I just think, ah, oh, am I being too cheap by waiting for certain things? And maybe in some categories I am, like the medical things where, where you said, you know, blood loss or anaphylactic shock. Um, so I should probably prioritize that. But that's what it really sounds like I need to do is, is look at my list while I have time and, and essentially prioritize it um, and then just work through that systematically. A lot, a lot of things also are just time-based, you know, making lists of, places to go in every direction or whatever, you know, and having names and names and uh, directions and numbers for hotels and things like that. I started those lists and then I don't finish them and I abandon them. So really it's just the things I need to sit down and spend some time on, I think. So. Even if they're it's 20% great. done, you're far ahead with 20% done. Right, right. So <laughs> yeah. just, just having thought through, and this is what I said in the course, right? I don't have you know, every single list laid out. I would love to be so organized that I had it all laid out right now. I'm traveling full time. So I have nothing. Um, everything is done. Right. But what I will say, just thinking through stuff 
is what makes the difference. Uh, really, that that's eighty percent of it is just thinking it through. So that you said, oh, if I did, yeah. if I were in this situation, what are some ideas? That gets you eighty percent of the way, and the last twenty percent, you 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 finish up. I think the only the only thing I would say is that you want to be thoughtful. When it comes to spending money, you want to be thoughtful and make sure that you have an exit strategy that you're happy with. I think the great danger with preparedness is often that it's so emotional for people. Uh, people often get scared about um, the end of the Mayan calendar or the the Hammurabi blah, 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 or the nuke attack or something like that. And so they, they respond in a place of emotional fear, and then they start just spending money wantonly. And then they wind up with the classic pallets of MREs in the garage uh, uh, after Y2K that they just never did anything with. And so I have always wanted to avoid that, and I've always wanted people to avoid that. So the first thing is don't do anything out of fear. Uh, that if you're acting from a place of emotional fear, there's just no reason. Now, be prepared to act against that, to, to be prepared against that. And so I think most of that is financial preparedness. I'll give a point. So two years ago, so, sorry, a year and a half ago, when it was March of 20, uh, 20, 2020, and I was looking at the, I started warning about the the coronavirus pandemic, I was watching the coronavirus pandemic, et cetera. I was feeling the, the, the fear of here is what I consider to be the worst case scenario, a pandemic. And so I went to the store, I had money, I had credit card, I went to the store, to the local um, warehouse store, and I bought carts and carts of stuff. Um, and I spent a few thousand dollars. My exit plan was I'll probably eat most of the stuff up and or give it away. And so my point is always have an exit plan. So I had other stuff. I bought some medical equipment uh, that I thought might help. I bought some extra medications. I bought stuff to treat. Um, you know, if one of my family members um, came down with the virus and I needed to have fluid, so I stocked up on extra medical stuff that, that seemed appropriate, oxygen, and did the best that I could with the, with the limited information that I had at that time. At that time, we were seeing pictures of people dropping over in the street in China. We had no idea what was actually uh, the case, and so I went and I spent money. And so I think that your lists are the valuable thing to do because then you know how to spend money when it's time to spend money. And I felt like I was executing that kind of last minute strategy effectively. I had some basic preparations at the time, but I saw the risks mounting very quickly. I was looking at the pandemic and saying, this is potentially very, very bad. And because this is very, very bad, potentially very, very bad, this is a good move for me to go ahead and um, and spend money. And so that was a point where there was an acute risk and I was spending money fast. Now, thankfully, uh, while the pandemic has been uh, significant in its impact on all of our lives, it's more been on the order of run-of-the-mill, like big significant, uh, as long as you didn't suffer death because of actually being infected. Uh, for most of us, though, it hasn't had the widespread shortages that I thought were were possible. It hasn't been a dramatic economic collapse that I thought was possible. So far, although we're seeing increasing rates of inflation, so far it hasn't been a massive uh, catastrophe, financial, you know, we're not in hyperinflation. And so, so far, um, we've done pretty well. 
uh, and and it's not been as bad as I feared. So when I left where I was living, by that time I made a when I when we decided to leave, I had several months, and for basically several months we bought some fresh vegetables, but we ate a lot of storage food. So I ate down several months worth of food, and then I donated the rest of the food to a local uh, food shelter, food pantry that was systematically had been throughout the pandemic systematically giving away food um, to people who were in need of it. And so I felt like it was no, it was a win-win. I was just happy to donate a couple thousand dollars worth of, of bulk food stuffs to people who needed it more than I did. And it was a simple and effective exit strategy. So when you're looking at money, ask yourself, what's my exit strategy? Um, and this is where there's a big difference between hard tangibles uh, some, that are easily sold, something like, I don't know, a new gun or ammunition um, versus something that's a little bit more difficult, like medical bandages. Um, the medical bandages are important, but what I would be inclined to do would be to have some medical bandages and then go cheap, like buy lots of, uh, you know, sack linen cloths or something like that, that, yeah, it's not as good as proper medical gauze, but it allows me to feel like I've not been, uh, careless just because it was expensive. Uh, but when it comes to something like uh, I don't know, a new gun, if you need one, very few of us need another one, but a new gun, it's like, okay, if I go and I buy a brand new gun today, uh, that gun just simply won't lose value. Uh, if it, if I put a lot of rounds through it, it might lose 10% or 20% of its value, which I might make up if I sell it private party in the future. Yes. If I take it back to the dealer, I'll take a 20% loss on it, but so you know your downside. So if you know your numbers and you know what you're dealing with, you're good to go. Same thing with my generator example. If you go on Facebook, and I did this, right? I bought a generator, and I had it there, used it sometimes, and then I just store my stuff on Craigslist or Facebook. At this point, store my stuff on Facebook, just sell it again and put it in money, and then turn the money into the next piece of gear in the next place. And so in the used market, very rarely, if you're at least thoughtful about um, shopping and you're shopping in the used market, very rarely can you not get out of your stuff for, um, you know, maybe just a 10% hit. And so the numbers are actually not as big as you otherwise think. What is often the case is that you're unaccustomed to thinking about tangibles as being financially valuable. And this is definitely something that did take, has taken me time to, to, to change. Um, we're so financialized in our thinking that we exclusively look to our net worth statements and the digits that are written on our spreadsheets as reflecting our value. And if those digits are not changing, then we feel like we're not making progress. But that's simply not true, right? If you, if you buy a generator and you spend $500 on that generator, you can sell that generator at any point for $400 in 24 or 48 hours. And so that is a real asset. And while it's harder to account for on a balance sheet, when you're spending money on durable tangibles, you it's actually something that, that does have value. You're not spending money, you're just saving it in a different form. And so that would, I guess, be the last thing, John, is simply that, that a lot of the purchases that you make for prepping are not actual expenditures. They're either, they're, they're savings just in physical tangible forms, or their insurance, right? The 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 
the EpiPen or, you know, I just did a, a post this morning on my social media about my GPS transponder that I travel with, right? It's insurance, right? I feel good knowing that I have a GPS, an SOS button that I can push literally anywhere on the planet and help will get there. It makes me feel good. So it's insurance. And so either view it and say, this is an insurance payment or this is a, um, just a transfer from, from fiat money to tangibles. And it's not the same as just going and spending money wantonly. No, I agree. And I appreciate the perspective. That's a, that's a very good way to frame it. And, um, yeah, I, I can, I can say that's true. Every, every little incremental preparation I do, it, it does bring more peace of mind. And, and I think it's uh, more peace of mind than than the expense that it was. So it's, uh, it's good advice. Thank you. Good. My pleasure. All right. We go on to Houston, Texas. Welcome to the show. How can I serve you today, sir? Hey, Josh. This is uh, John. Can you hear me? John, I can hear you well. Go ahead. Great. Hey, thanks for taking my call. I love the show. <clears throat> um, I'm in my first year of a potential early retirement. Um, I, I don't own any property. I'd be a first-time homeowner home buyer i'm looking to just buy something once and uh, uh own it for a long time <clears throat> um potentially buying a piece of land and you know building building the house myself on it um just wanted to talk about uh financing options um i have the the funds you know to held in sort of liquid investments uh, such as like equities spread across a few different accounts taxable uh traditional and roth accounts um but i was wondering you know, with, with interest rates as low as they are, and, you know, just, you know, banks pretty much just throwing money at people. I was thinking, man, that's hard to, hard to kind of pass up, uh, trying to do some kind of financing rather than just, uh, paying it in cash. Um, so I've looked at a couple options. I guess one of the things I saw also was, uh, some of these brokerages will, will lend you money against your securities. Uh, so you don't have to, nine to sell them, you know, and realize the capital gains and, and you can, kind of use that i was wondering if you had any uh any thoughts or you know just just pay it in cash and forget about it will the banks lend to you without an income yeah i think um that's kind of be the biggest the biggest hurdle um you know i'll have a, i'll have a w2 this year but that's just from you know the, the last of the income i was making uh, uh from my from my previous job um, and then next year you won't, won't have a W2. So, um, I, I've read about, you know, no income type loans, but it's, I, I'm, I'm willing to bet that, you know, the interest rates on those, if they even are still offered, but would probably make them not, not make sense for me. And, uh, are you single? Do you have other family members that are also involved in this decision? Uh, just me. Okay. Uh, I, I would, I, I think if I were in your shoes, I would build it myself and I would just pay cash for it. Um, and I can give you some ways to potentially make that more appealing. Um, it's certainly you wonder sometimes, and I, am I being stupid for, for turning down cheap money? And I'm not opposed to financing, not opposed to your financing it. Um, it's, 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 it's one of those difficult things. But when I look at it, if it's just you, then, and, and if you're going into early retirement, you're going to need something to do. And if you're thinking about building the house, uh, 
I think that you would enjoy the project more of building the house that you want to live in, doing it yourself, and making it part of your just overall plan to do it to a level that's appropriate for you, but do it frugally. And you'll probably spend less money if you just simply pay cash yourself. And you'll be done with the risks of of um, of financing. Because although although I don't think it would be risky for a financially independent person to borrow money for a mortgage, it's not risky in that scenario, right? If your mutual funds fall apart, if the stock market just goes bananas forever, like we got big problems. And as we see, a lot of times mortgage companies don't foreclose, right? Sometimes they put uh, for they're they're legally prohibited from foreclosing in some situations. And so I'm not, I'm not someone who says it's just a necessarily risky scenario, but at the end of the day, it is still really nice not to have that hanging over your head. And what I would say is the simplicity of it could also be helpful. So here would be some some things that I would do to uh, to probably sell myself on building the property myself and just using my own savings rather than rather than financing it. Number one, I would say I could probably get better deals and I'll be motivated to get better deals if I just pay cash for it. Um, one one prior point that I should have started with, I should have done it in this way. If, you, if you're going to build a property on land that you own or have bought, then you got to deal with the, the difficulties of a construction loan, which is going to be more difficult. And you're going to, if you do that also, you'll have constraints on the construction loan put on you by your lender as far as the certain designs that they're willing to to deal with, et cetera. And so it sounds to me like you're the kind of guy who would probably be well-suited to say, this is the house I want to live in. I'm going to build the kind of house that I want to live in for the rest of my life. I've worked hard to do this. I'm going to just make my house. Now, you'll think about saleability. It'd be foolish not to. You'll think about code obviously you'll have to uh, here in houston you have you have no building or sorry you don't have zoning you, you have building codes but not uh um zoning laws uh so like you'll have your own uh but you can build your own house without thinking about well what is the finance officer going to say about my plans etc and so the construction loan and building your own house is is even more of a reason just use your own money and then if you want a loan later then then consider Impose, putting into place a traditional loan. Second thing I would say is that if you do it yourself, you'll be motivated because you're actually spending cash rather than debt. You'll be motivated to get better deals along the way. Uh, and so you'll negotiate a little bit more. You'll be willing to use more uh, used uh, recycled materials, which would be great um, to both from a, uh, from a, just a a good stewardship perspective of using good things rather than always buying new stuff. And also from a cost savings perspective. Uh, And then I think one other benefit, you could build a house and do it in such a way that you can skip insurance. Um, If you get a mortgage, you're going to be required to keep insurance. I don't know what insurance rates are for you, but if I had a debt-free house and I were living in that house was a modest representation of my net worth, at least being from Florida where insurance rates are high, I would, I would use the opportunity to skip the skip having homeowners insurance. And, um, then you can even talk about things like privacy, right? Um, I care a lot about personal privacy. You have an opportunity, if you're at all interested, you have an opportunity to have personal privacy when you, um, 
because you can you can buy the land, own it in an entity, uh, disconnected from your name. And that's relatively easy to do. First of all, when you're paying cash, and it's even easier to do when you're building a property, except possibly with the DIY builder. But you have more privacy than if you do financing. Uh, and so those are some reasons I would I would look at, and I think my guess is I would go with uh, just simply pay cash for it. Be done with the stress. You're getting out of the work life. Be out of the financial space. Own your house. Have your cheap property tax bill per year. Have your investment portfolio and move on uh, with your life rather than staying in the in the having monthly bills space. Right. Yeah, that, that sounds good. I have seen that. Uh, you know, being a cash buyer, you can get into certain areas and get better deals. You know, people in different situations wanting to have a quick sale. So that, that, that resonates with me. That second point you made, um, just, I guess a, a follow-up on the putting, putting the, um, the house in a, the property in an entity. Um, is that something that I'd really have to get set up before I purchased it? Or, or I mean, would I lose the privacy or if, if I purchased it in my own name? Cause I, you know, I don't have an entity set up right now. And, and if I had to move on something quick, uh, and then I guess I'd probably have to transfer the deed from, from my own name to a, to an entity Would, would that kind of negate the, the benefits of it or go and read Michael Bazell's book on, um, on this topic. I uh, forget the name of it. I can look it up, but go and go and find his book where he talks about, um, setting it up and then investigate the details in your state, uh, setting up a land trust in your state and see what's possible, uh, with that. You do need to, you, it would be best for you to do a little bit. If that's, if that's interesting to you, it's best for you to do two things. Number one, it's best for you to do the research now. And number two, it's best for you to do some practice now. Um, my experience with privacy techniques is first of all, you can think about how, um, how hardcore you would want to be with regard to privacy, uh, and why, and, and being as hardcore as possible just because it's cool, in my opinion, is not the right answer. Uh, you have to have a reason why you care about privacy and enough motivation to actually do it because it is generally inconvenient to, to do. Now, someone like me, right, making my living on the internet, um, being well familiar with what happens when public personalities get doxxed, I have a higher motivation than most people to protect my family from the dangers of the internet world in which you go viral in a day and all of a sudden uh, for some scandalous thing that you said or some scandalous thing that you thought and all of a sudden the world comes crashing down upon you. I sleep well at night knowing that I'm hard to find on the internet. Uh, and so you may not have that same risk profile and it's totally fine for you to say it's not a big deal to me. So, but the reason I said practice is that what I have done is I have over the years, I have practiced a lot of the techniques and I've decided for myself which ones I'm actually willing to do now and which ones I'm actually willing not to do now. And so I've backed off a lot on some of the privacy techniques that I put into place in the past because they were simply too inconvenient. And if you want hardcore privacy, then you, uh, if you want hardcore privacy, you need to be skilled with the techniques of privacy in order to actually maintain it. It may not be necessary for you, right? Maybe your, your, your threat profile is simply, 
you know what? I live in Texas. I'd like my ta- my house to be homesteaded and asset protected for me. Uh, I would just like to make it uh, a little bit more complicated to look up uh, on the internet. Well, maybe there something as simple as a living trust might give you what you're looking for. You can still be on the record as, with all the utilities companies. You don't have to use a pseudonym with all the utility companies. You don't have to have necessarily all your personal mail go to another space and you're good enough with a living trust. And so I would say the first thing is just think about what you would want, how interested you are in personal privacy and how willing you are to actually put it in place. Okay. That would be the the main advantage would be the the privacy aspect. And I guess, um, asset protection potentially as well. If, if, uh, you know, I, 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 the house actually wouldn't be in Texas, you know, which which has really good asset protection laws around houses it, it being an out of state. But um, would, would those be the, the two primary uh, advantages or any sort of financial or tax advantages to some of these entities? No, there's no financial or tax advantages. All they're going to do is add cost. Um, the costs are modest, but they're going to add cost. So they're, the cheapest thing you can do is just buy the house in your name, register it, be a normal person. Uh, have all your mail go there, have your car registered there. That's the cheapest thing you can do. Privacy adds cost and complexity and inconvenience to your life. So if you want the benefits of it, there are some really good things. And I think that for a lot of people, um, and again, you may just not have, you may not, you may have really no threat profile where it's just at all important to you. Um, but for a lot of people, the what i would i don't have a tiering system perfectly worked out but just think of it as like lower tier private it's not lower tier it's middle tier privacy if you just if if many people did a few basic things and here are the few basic things and you have an opportunity when you're when you're moving to a place to to do this number one is first of all don't ever send all your mail to the house if you're willing to simply use a post office box um, nearby, send your mail to the post office box instead, because that's the simplest thing is you get on every list and it just floods in uh, when it's at your own address. And then you never get the stuff off the internet, right? Anytime anybody Googles your name for the rest of your life, that address is going to be there because you signed up for everything. And so kind of 101 is have a post office box. If you want to have a private home, you can do it. It's and you can you register the home in an entity. Uh, you can do it with a blind entity where it's not looked through to you. The complexities come from financing and insurance. So again, back to your threat profile. If you want to have insurance on the property, the insurance company is going to know who has the insurance policy. And the same thing with financing company. That's that's fine for many people because what many people worried about is I'm on the front page of Reddit today and all of a sudden the crazies start sending you know porno magazines to my house. I don't want that. And so it's fine if the insurance company has my name, the financing company has my name. The opportunity is because you have the you could set up a situation where you don't need insurance and you don't need financing, then it's relatively easy for you to avoid um, those risks. And so you can just simply buy a piece of land and with the exception of the complexity of building, right? Where is the contractor going to do it? If you're going to do it yourself, then there's going to be a lot of your footprint uh, from a privacy perspective on that property as an owner builder. If you have a contractor build a house for you, then uh, then you're good to go. And and again, you have to ask how, how worthwhile is this? And then you just simply register your car uh, in an LLC 
and register those things to a different address and you've got really high quality privacy. Uh, And then the final thing is put all your utilities into a different name. And so what you would do is simply set up one identity for your house. And so it's, you know, John Jones who lives at the house. The utilities are in John Jones's name. That's easy to do in today's world. Uh, All the magazines come to John Jones at that house. And, you know, whatever your name is just simply resides over here at a different place a few miles away. So that's, it's it's a really phenomenal system. It's really nice to lay your head at night um, knowing that you're harder to find, that your friends know where you live, but you're not as easily findable. You'll lose a few things, right? You won't be able to legally register to vote in that scenario. Um, you won't be able to, uh, because you've got to be vote, registered to your house uh, if you're going to legally vote. And so, you know, I don't know anybody who uh, cares about privacy who's registered to vote. And there are some other things, but it's it's really nice. And if you're going to be in a place for a long time, it can be one of those things that is easy to set up in the beginning and is really hard to fix down the road. So that's why I raise it for you to consider. Yeah, great. Appreciate the insight. Could you just repeat the name of that, that author again, Michael? Michael Bazell, B-A-Z-Z-E-L-L. Uh, I think he's still doing It's Intel Techniques. Let's see if that's still his website. Uh, should be. I don't know why he would have changed. So his website is inteltechniques.com. He has 232 episodes of a podcast. And oh, look at that. He's got a new book that I have not read. Um, I read all his other ones, but he has a new book called Extreme Privacy, third edition that I have not read. Uh, and so his previous one was the one that I was recommending. Uh, but I would definitely, uh, I will order that as soon as I finish recording the show so I can read that book as well. And I would recommend get, uh, get his stuff. If you're new to privacy, don't start with, with his stuff because he's hardcore. Start with JJ Luna's book. Have you re- have you ever read uh, J.J. Luna's book um, called uh, "It's in My Library"? How to Be Invisible? Have you ever read that? I have not. Okay, so gr- pick up a copy of J.J. Luna's book called "How to Be Invisible." Uh, it's an older book. The most recent edition was published in two thousand and twelve. And so it's a little bit out of date with regard to some of the current best practices in the privacy community. Um, but what Luna does that the others don't do as well is Luna is motivational and uh, really good at storytelling. And so Luna's book um, may, may put it within you a desire to be private Uh, And then if you have that desire to be private, then go ahead and look at uh, Bazell's stuff. The last thing I would suggest for you, hang on one second, stand by. The title, I found the title, uh, what I want to recommend is actually a listener of the show uh, and a and a uh, client of mine uh, who I've done some work with, he wrote, just wrote a new book called The Watchman Guide to Privacy, Reclaim Your Digital, Financial, and Lifestyle Freedom. And I think that this is actually probably a better second step for you versus Michael Bazell's stuff because Bazell is super intense, super hardcore. And I think a lot of people read his stuff and just walk away saying, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Um, but Luna's stuff is getting a little bit dated. And so um, the book I would say is The Watchman Guide to Privacy, Reclaim Your Digital, Financial, and Lifestyle Freedom, uh, 10 bucks on Kindle. So uh, go with that uh, or 18 bucks uh, on Amazon and a really good, uh, really good opportunity for you there. 
I just blanked on the name of the book for a moment. So uh, those are my recommendations. Start with those books. Grab Luna's book and Watchman Guide to Privacy. If it interests you, then uh, you can learn a lot in Luna's, sorry, in uh, Bazell's stuff as well. Make sense? Yep, great. Thanks, Joshua. My pleasure. Thank you for calling in. All right, we go next. Two more callers here. We go to California. Welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Hey there, can you hear me okay? Sounds great. Great. Um, okay, well, Southern California is relevant to this. Uh, I'm young and super interested in uh, house hacking and Nomad, and I'm just getting into it. I went to, I think his name is James Orr, James Orr, his website. Is that the dude? Yes. Okay. I went to his website and watched through some of his two-hour classes on YouTube and stuff, and I'm super interested in it, and... He's talking about Northern Colorado and the markets there and going super deep into those local markets. And I'm curious, I mean, it seems like a very uh, difficult and hard thing to get into real estate in Southern California. And I don't have any illusions about that. But at the same time, some of, you know, house hacking and nomad in particular seem like they could be options for me and my wife. We have no kids. Um, and we're saving a lot right now. So I'm also open to just trying to figure out what to do with, you know, some of that cash for midterm, long-term, whatever. We're currently renting our primary residence have for all five years of our marriage. And that's felt like a little bit of a non-optimized use of money for where we're at. And so that's what's got me looking into it. But at the same time, living in Southern California, um, we're not like filthy rich or anything. So I can't really you know, get million dollar properties or anything like that. Um, and just hearing uh, Mr. Orr talk about some of the particularities and some of the reports he's bringing up, some of, some of the data he just has on what kind of single families are available, what they typically go for, what typically typical rents are, just that sort of thing. I was just like, wow, that's such good info to have that would be probably invaluable in helping do more research and try to make some sort of a decision about whether we want to get into that we're kind of also looking at just buying our first home anyway. So it may happen even if we don't go the nomad route, we may just be looking for a house anyway. So that's kind of all the facts um, of, of the situation. But my question is, where would you go if you were me to just start trying to learn more about making a better educated decision that's maybe even numbers driven based on you know, market statistics and stuff like that. Like, I wish I knew everything that he does about Northern Colorado, about Southern California. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, I would call a real estate agent and I would go on Reddit and see what I can find in those two places. Uh, first of all, a real estate agent will give you a sense of what is possible. Um, many of real estate agents will not be all that that clued into the technical details, uh, but at least that it'd be good to talk with a couple of people who are involved in, in it and get an idea of what the numbers are, et cetera. Uh, and then I would bet that with a little bit of digging on Reddit, you could find some active, um, some active conversations on it. Other, or I would go to a couple of the big uh, real estate forums. Uh, I would imagine bigger pockets would be a great place. Um, I haven't spent much time in many of the, the early retirement forums in years now, but I would go into some of the big early retirement forums and um, just try to start a thread and ask the people there and get a sense of uh, a, 
try to find some of the people who would have the data and have the experience in your area. Good thing about Southern California is there are a lot of people there and you should be able to find them hanging out somewhere on the internet with some insight into you, into the situation. What stands out to me, and that would probably be better for you, by the way, than, um, than uh, necessarily the realtor, because most real estate agents are not going to be ready to go with all that, all that data. What I would say, though, is probably it's unnecessary for you to get that deep into the data. And one of the things that I believe has caused a lot of people excessive, uh, just held people back, uh, and this includes me, is over-analysis. And I think this is especially true with real estate. You come across a good idea and you think, hey, this could be a good idea. And you, then you say, well, I'm going to research it and I'm going to try to find the best deal. And a lot of times people who spend time trying to find the best deal never make a deal. And if in something like real estate, in order for you to actually make money and in order for you to actually use the strategy, you just got to do it. So the great thing about real estate is it's pretty easy to get into in most situations and it's pretty easy to get out of. And I remember before I did my first real estate um, purchase, it just made me, I was so scared. And then after I got in, got out, then all that fear went away. I was like, this is simple, right? People buy and sell houses all the time. And so when, the way to look at it is basically, what's my downside? Uh, and what I would say is, in your market, um, I don't think, well, I think that California has headwinds. I don't expect your market to plummet. It's not going to fall apart. Uh, I think you've had, what, something like 2% growth in San Francisco this year, but many, many uh, home values in California have increased by double digits across the state. Uh, California, people, a lot of people love it. It's, it's, it's a, a very strong market. I think it's a strong market. There's a lot of wealthy people, and wealthy people are less susceptible to um, financial uh, ups and downs than, than a lot of other people. And so I'm not scared of the market if the numbers can work. And so what I'd say is I would just go house shopping, um, look at some stuff and just go look and physically tour some houses. And you should have some sense of the re real rental market because you have been in the rental market tour some houses that you think might work and get a sense of what's available for you and then talk to some financing agents and talk to some mortgage brokers and see what options are available for you with financing in different scenarios. And if you just spend a few weeks doing that, you'll have a very good sense of whether those strategies will work in your area or not. And so I've given you my answer for where to find the data, but I'll tell you that I think the data is interesting but not that big of a deal for a scenario like you're describing. If you have um, you know, dual income, no kids, saving plenty of money, you can probably finagle the financing. If you get into it and you can put your tenants in place to help you do it, you're probably good to go. And you should have enough wiggle room in your budget that if you have vacancies or unexpected expenses, you can just cash flow them. That's the advantage that high income or, or that's the advantage that, that at least moderate income people have in the real estate space is that you don't have to make everything from, from it. And if you'll get in and start, if you'll get in and be an owner and a buyer, then you'll position yourself in a sense where things are actually going to, you'll position yourself to where you can actually take advantage of what's happening. And even if you only got mortgage pay down, 
that's still benefit. You don't have to make the best deal out there. Uh, and again, telling you from hard-won experience that I used to think I've got to make the best deal because I went to real estate seminars and people said, oh, you got you to make, make your money when you buy and I got to get the best deal. And so I thought, I got to get the best deal. I got to get the best deal. And getting the best deal is exhausting sometimes. And so I've since changed my opinion. I've since said, you just got to get a deal and then in time you'll get better deals. And there's no question that you want to get the best deal that you can, but sometimes the best deal that you can get is, might be just pay retail and in the strategy that you're describing even paying retail is not bad it's 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 not the best but it's not bad so go and shop and focus on taking action and if you get into it and you decide hey this doesn't work for me we don't like this then sell the house and move on killer thanks so much for that appreciate what you do that's all i have cool thanks man all right, Thomas, you said you had another question. We'll do it. Uh, we'll wrap it up with uh, with your second question. Go ahead, sir. Hey, Joshua. Thanks for taking the uh, second question. Uh, actually, kind of relates to the last one. Uh, I was wanted to ask, I remember you talking about wanting to build a real estate portfolio in the past, and I just kind of wanted to know if that was still your plan and what type, what I guess, area of real estate were you looking at uh, doing? My plans personally have been stymied by my sense of frustration with the United States of America and my wondering whether I want to divorce myself from that particular country or just go to counseling and, you know, go back into it. And so I left the United States uh, basically almost three years ago. And when I left the United States, I set out a plan to establish myself so that I didn't have to be connected to the future of the United States. I was very concerned about the, um, I was very concerned about the long-term future of the country. I was very concerned about legal changes that would affect me, that would cause me um, moral troubles, just personal sense of, uh, of my conscience and my own ethical uh, ability to live with myself if I were involved with that country, and just a concern about the fact that I hadn't really taken the, the measure of the world in a way that I should have, that I basically, like most of us who grow up in the United States, that I was born and raised there and just seemed like the best place, and after all, we're the best country in the world. And so I left with the goal of putting in place a plan B the ability to not have to depend upon the United States. And so over the last few years, I have systematically um, executed on that. So at this point in time, uh, I could never go back to the United States the rest of my life. I could uh, divorce myself from the country. I could uh, renounce my citizenship and I could live in several places around the world and, and uh, have a very bright future without that. So what has been interesting to me along that journey is that I now, since I don't have to be in a relationship with the United States, I now feel much more peaceful and much more detached. And I can appreciate more objectively and dispassionately some of the good things about um, living in the United States in a way that I was blinded to uh, previously by my frustrations 
with the country. And so right now, I'm in the process of basically trying to decide for, let's say, the next five years or so, five to 10 years, do I want to be involved with the United States or not? So along the way, I put most of my uh, investment strategies on hold, especially with things like real estate. Um, I, I don't own any real estate in the United States. And what I have been questioning is, well, do I want to be involved in business in the United States? And, and by the way, I primarily want to be involved in investing in business, not in real estate. Um, I think that real estate is great uh, for a lot of people, but I would personally like to be involved in business. I want to fix and flip businesses. And so uh, that's something that I have interest in. That's something that I believe I can build the skills to do. And that's my primary plan is not to be not real estate necessarily, but business. Uh, so I, but, but to, 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 to answer your question is that I decided that these, these uh, personal decisions were of a higher priority for me than buying houses and buying rental houses and things like that. So I made the conscious choice to sit out and ignore the last few years of real estate. So where I'm at right now is at the moment I am traveling around the world and I am systematically trying to figure out are some of the international options interesting to me enough for me to commit myself to not being in the United States or are the lifestyle considerations of everything being easy and simple and cheap and I know how it works enough to convince me to move back to the United States. So from a real estate perspective, uh, I, I'd really like to go to um, Southeast Asia before I buy a house in, um, before I buy a house in the United States. Uh, I'd really like to go and, and put boots on the ground and tour around Thailand and Malaysia and Cambodia and Vietnam and uh, Taiwan and South Korea and look for opportunities and ask myself, are there opportunities here? Uh, because I think there are a lot of opportunities. I spent a lot of time in Latin America. I understand the markets there. Uh, I see opportunities in some of those places, but I also don't see the, necessarily the same growing economies as Southeast Asia. And so I'm, I'm trying to get myself to Southeast Asia to spend some time there. Unfortunately, COVID has derailed my plans. Uh, and then, but so, so just kind of an honest, long-winded way of saying that my issue right now is, do I want to, to have anything to do with the United States? At the moment, if you were to ask me a year ago, I think my answer would have been, um, I don't want to, I don't want to go back. Uh, I don't want anything to do with them. I don't want them in my life. Uh, I, I don't want to go back today. I think my, I'm, I'm softened on that. And I talk, I think almost every day and I talk with my wife uh, almost every other day and I try to figure out, well, what do I want? And the biggest challenge here for me is simply my children. I've had a lot of freedom um, to kind of wander around because my children have been quite young, but my children are not as young as they were. And so in order for me to have the kind of family life that I envision, 
I need to make some of these bigger decisions. And so I'm right in the middle of deciding that. So if I go back to the United States, then I will put in place a certain set of strategies. If I stay out of the United States, I will pursue alternative strategies. And basically in my head, although I have no firm deadline, I'm really trying to come to some clarity on that personal question over say the next six months or so. Uh, and that's the basic reason why I'm wandering around the world right now. <laughs> so obviously there's not, it's not, um, it's not, uh, you know, it's not do or die. You can change anything, right? That's one of the things that I have come to appreciate is I could move back to the United States and I could leave a year later. Uh, just like I could decide I don't want to leave and I could be gone and I could change my mind a year from now. But I don't think for the, for the, for the well being of my family, I think it's more important for me to, um, make a clearer, give clearer direction where there's more consistency versus changing my mind all the time. And so since I have completed um, my comprehensive plan B, uh, then I feel a lot better now. And so right now, over the next six months, I'm personally trying to decide um, the answer to that question. And then that will drive what I personally do with regard to future real estate and business activities. That makes sense? Definitely. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. If, uh, if you're willing to share, look forward to seeing what you find. Uh, I mean, I haven't been to all the Southeast Asian countries, but there are definitely some that other ones that I want to go to still. Um, yeah. It's, experiences thus far have been good. Yeah. It's obviously a totally different world. Um, but I mean, the numbers don't lie, right? If you want to know where the economic growth is, the numbers are very obvious. Uh, the economic growth is not in the West, right? The population growth is not in the West at the moment. The population growth is in the South. The global South is where the population growth is. The global South is where the economic growth the next couple of decades is going to be. And so that's where the opportunities are. If I were, you know, 21 years old and single, I would be living in, in Ethiopia or in Bangkok or something like that, because that's where the, that's where the action is going to be for the next few decades. I'm not 21 years old and I'm not single. And so it's more complex for me to answer some of those other questions of where is the best place for my family to live. And that's a harder question. It goes pretty deep to try to figure that out. Cause there's no, there's no rubric, <laughs> there's no manual for it. Uh, in fact, I find it really overwhelming right. to try to think through, right? The reason most of us live where we live is because that's where we're from. That's where our family is and, or that's where we have a job. And in my situation, I'm not currently living where I'm from. I'm not currently living where my family is and my job can be done anywhere. And so I thought that I wanted that freedom, right? It took me 15 years to build that freedom. Well, then I got it. And now I just find myself totally overwhelmed because I don't know whether I should live in Addis Ababa or Riyadh or, or Rio or, or anywhere. And it's too much. And so uh, I've tried to approach it. And I'm, but right now I'm trying to, um, to see it. And I just wish I'd seen more of the world when it was easier. Because right now, um, because we have four young children and I don't regret it and I'm not complaining, but I cannot leave my wife at home with four young children and go bounce around the globe, um, say, oh, I'm going to go bounce around the globe. That's just, it's not appropriate. And so I'm bringing my wife and my children with me, but it just makes a different kind of uh, travel experience and travel arrangement than the other opportunities. And so 
at the moment, we're just, again, I got, I got plans and opportunities. I think there's opportunities all over, but that's my answer is I don't know. Uh, and so I'm mostly focused on trying to answer the question of where do I want to live because I'm at a phase in my family life where that's the best thing I can do for the well-being of my family, which is the reason that I care about making money. Uh, and then once I've decided that, then the constraints will be obvious and the proper personal investment plan into business and uh, real estate and everything else will be obvious once I've made that decision. And so I've given myself basically maybe six more months and then I will, um, I'll be somewhere and uh, decided something. Uh, I just don't know the answer to that yet. Great. Thank you for the response and may God uh, bless you with the wisdom and discernment to do what's right with for you and your family. I appreciate that more than you know, because <laughs> it is a, uh, a very significant issue, right? You feel the, the, um, the, the responsibility significantly. And I find it difficult to, again, there's no rule book, right? Most people don't think the way that I think it's fine. It's no big deal. But like most people don't, don't, don't look at the world the way that I look at it. There's not, there's some who do, uh, but it just leads to, it's kind of a, there are not a lot of people that you can ask for advice on it. <laughs> there are not a lot of people who've done anywhere near the things that I've done. And so it's hard to find those people that can be the trusted confidants who actually understand enough to give uh, good advice, but we're working on it. That's it for today's show. Thank you all so much for listening and for calling in. It's been a great pleasure to uh, to have this conversation with you. I'd love to talk to you next week. Remember, if you go to patreon.com slash radical personal finance, then you can sign up to support the show on Patreon and you can gain access to next week's live Q&A. Patreon.com slash radical personal finance. Bye.